So what does this text, what does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us about love? We're going to see that this passage tells us how long love is going to last. This passage will tell us about the, the nature and the character of love. That's where the, the passage that Mike read, you know, we get that, that famous passage that's always acknowledged and yet so rarely followed. And we're also going to see just how significant the Lord deems love to be. He tells us of an attitude or a disposition or a motivation that is not optional, as I've already said. And he's going to get our attention right away. So read these lines with me in this first part in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at these first uh, three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and had all knowledge, if I have faith, the type of faith that's so powerful it can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up even my own body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here's the first thing I want you to see. This first section here, these first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, set the stage for the rest of the study. If you don't get what the Lord is saying here in these first three verses, then you will be prone to looking at verses four through seven as something that's just sort of cute, something that's just sort of inspiring and, and beautiful, but not something that's grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, look, this is the way you're to live. You got to get these first three verses first because he's going to let it really sink into ears and hearts and saying, I expect this from you. This matters. The Lord lets us know just how important it is to have and to display love to each other. Because here's the first thing. He's going to mention these, these three, um, three categories, if you will. The category of speaking in tongues, the category of having special knowledge and faith, and then the category of uh, being people of giving great acts of charity, right? Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. So let's talk real quick about speaking in tongues. When he says there in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, this is not a reference to some kind of an incoherent babbling. I'm convinced that this is making reference to actual, literal languages that can be known and can be spoken, can be understood. Like we see, go back to Acts chapter 2 real quick, where we see in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and the text says clearly in Acts 2 verse 4 that the apostles began to speak in tongues just like we're reading about here in 1 Corinthians 13. The apostles began to speak in tongues. But then look at Acts 2, verse 6, and verse 8, and verse 11. So Acts 2, 6, 8, and 11. The people in the crowd, the people who are witnessing the miracle that's taking place, all of them say, I can hear these guys talking in my language. They make the point, look, we're from, we're from all over. We're from all kinds of places. We speak all kinds of languages. And these, and when they call them Galileans, that wasn't a, wasn't a compliment. What they were saying was, these backwoods, uneducated folk, they're speaking in all these different languages? It's clearly a miracle, because they hadn't been trained, they hadn't been taught. They hadn't sat down and, and tried to study and learn these other languages. Just in an instant, here they were speaking in the languages that all these other people can understand. And that miracle blew them away. How are we hearing these things in our own native tongue? How are you hearing it in your tongue? How are you hearing it in your tongue? How are you hearing it in your tongue? How is this happening? 
because God did something there. Even the, the idea of speaking of tongues of men and of angels, I believe has reference to something that could potentially be understood where they're an interpreter. Like we see in 1 Corinthians 14, 7 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28. I mean, let's just read that real quick. 1 Corinthians 14, 7. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, he'll know to get ready for battle. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? In other words, it's of no value. For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world, and none's without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Drop down to 27, 14, 27. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three, each in turn. Let someone interpret. There's no one to interpret. Let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. In other words, when he says here in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, it seems like he's saying no matter how amazing or no matter how obscure the language might be, if I'm speaking it without love, it's just noise. Nothing special about it. Then the next one, the next category is knowledge and faith. He says in verse 2 that if I have prophetic powers, understand mysteries, and have all knowledge, and I have the kind of faith that can move mountains, what he's talking about here is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus said to his disciples, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Moving a mountain, that seems to be a metaphor for accomplishing the seemingly impossible, for accomplishing that which on your own is impossible, but with God is possible. And so he says, there'll be those, you know, like we go back to King Solomon, 1 Kings 2. There were those who had great gifts of wisdom and they had great knowledge from God. But that didn't make them robots. That didn't make them where they couldn't sin. They still had to love the right things in the right ways. And we know King Solomon, as wise as he was, let his love get out of whack. And let his heart follow those women and lead him away from the Lord. We know this. And so the idea still needs to be, no matter what the knowledge, no matter what the wisdom, still must be led by, motivated by, corralled by, love for the lord then thirdly verse 3 speaks of acts of charity giving away what i have even giving up my body as a as a, a mar martyr we know according to matthew chapter 6 verse 2 some love to be seen and praised Matt, jesus says in matthew 6 2 you know there are some they will wait till just the right time where the most eyes and most ears are upon them and they will make sure everybody sees how much they give and the moment that somebody says, wow, you're generous, the moment somebody says, boy, you are a really spiritual and religious person, the moment those words are uttered and gone into that person's ear and down to their heart, your reward is finished. Nothing else to look forward to. That's your reward, that's it, and that's sad. And so the Lord says here, if that's what my motivation is in giving, I got nothing. Some love to play the martyr so they can gain attention and praise. But charity is to be done for two reasons. And neither one has to do with human praise or recognition. 
You and I should be giving people, joyously giving people, number one, so that God can be glorified, and number two, so that others can be helped, uplifted, encouraged, moved from a place of oppression to a place of freedom. You and I help others to glorify God and just to help others. That's it. Now, here's where we get to the, how significant all this is. Because he says in verse one, we're talking about uh, speaking certain ways, verse two, certain powers, certain abilities, as it were. And verse three, giving. Here's where I want you to see how significant this is. Without love, no matter what it is that I say, no matter how eloquent or how powerful or how unique, or how novel, no matter what it is I say, without love, I'm saying nothing. Are your words, think with me, think carefully, try and think dispassionately. Are your words soothing and comforting to the people that you speak to, or are your words irritating? When I think about this verse, I can't help, it's the way my mind works, I can't help but think of the Andy Griffith Show. If you're like me, you love the episode called The Mayberry Band. Remember this one? There's a marching band that's going to play a very special occasion for the town. And Barney wants to be a part. Remember the instrument he wants to play? He's got those cymbals. And every time he crashes those cymbals together, it either terrifies someone or it angers someone. He can't wait. He spent extra money, right, to get the good ones. Every time he did it, people cringed, people jumped. Nobody was happy that he was playing his cymbals. And as funny as that is, the Lord says, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Don't be the one who says things and does things in such a way to where you're no longer taken seriously. You want to be taken seriously. You want to help. But when you speak without love, you say nothing, God says. Even if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I do something really special, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I say nothing. None of us wants to be in that spot. And that brings us to this. If I have all these prophetic powers and understand all these mysteries, but I do these things without love, not only do I not say anything, but I am nothing. This is even more sobering than the first one, isn't it? I have these special skills and abilities. I can, I can think very highly of myself. But the divine perspective is very different. My value and my worth is not found in what I'm able to do in this kind of regard. My value and my worth is found in first and foremost being made in the image of God. And that alone means that I'm loved by Him and I'm now to return that love to Him. That's 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first loved us. When I acknowledge the special gift that God has given, that's when I love others the way God would have me love them. But when I act without love, I am nothing. That's one of the most sobering, most terrible things I think I could possibly say from here to you. And yet the Lord says, if this is who you are, 
that is what you need to think. That brings us to the third category, verse three. If I give away all I have and deliver it, my body be burned, I don't have and don't have love in it, then I even gain nothing, or it profits me nothing, or really this way, I accomplish nothing. Wait, didn't you see that huge, that fat check I just wrote? Didn't you see the way I set myself up to take the arrows and, and protect others? I'm the martyr here. If you do these things without love, you have accomplished nothing, God says. No credit is going into your spiritual bank account. We like to look back at the end of each day. I, I think all of us would fit this description. We like to look back at the end of the day as you're getting ready to finally rest, lie down for a moment, close your eyes for a few hours. Don't you like to look back at the day and say, I accomplished something today. Doesn't that feel good? Well, the Lord would have us to gain, gain clarity here and see from his perspective rather than from our perspective. Acts of kindness done from selfish motivation may temporarily relieve a burden of someone else, but it does nothing for us. We don't accomplish anything if we're not motivated in love. When we do anything, even acts of charity without love, we accomplish nothing. Now, you see, that's the sobering part of all this. He says, if you just speak without love, you're saying nothing. If you act without love, you are nothing. If you give without love, you accomplish nothing. Woo, so tell me, Lord, what do I, what do, I do then? And that's what brings us to verse 4, to the passage that's so familiar with all of us. See, we've skipped over those first three verses that really drive home, drop the hammer on how serious this is, that your motivation must be love. And then this is the way in which you're to act. Love is patient and kind, doesn't envy or boast, not arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, not irritable or resentful, you know, keeping a, a running list of all those who've wronged you. Now you can mark them off the list at certain points maybe, or put a star next to them because they're extra on the list now. Love doesn't do that. Love's not irritable or resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What's being described here is a pattern of behavior. You know this, but you need to hear it again this morning in this context. You know this. What the kind of love being described here in 1 Corinthians 13 is not an emotion that comes and goes. We talk about being in love and no longer being in love and these kinds of things with boyfriends and girlfriends and whatever, you know, I'm in love today, she loves me, she loves me not, it comes and goes. That's not what we're talking about. This is the kind of thing that's a pattern of behavior that can be learned by Christians and emulated by following those like Jesus the Christ or Paul the Apostle. We learn by gaining knowledge, reading. Okay, here it is in black and white, verses 4 through 7. There it is. But then we can also emulate, see what Paul did, the way he treated people. See what Jesus did, the way he treated people. And so it's a pattern of behavior. We very often talk about how this kind of love, if we're following Jesus, we're following Paul, this kind of love is sacrificial. It means that we put our own needs second. We put our own desires and our own feelings aside in order to first and foremost please God and to help neighbor. The examples from, from this little paragraph here would be things like this. Being patient. Now listen to this. Let's talk about being patient for a moment. The terminology actually is one that describes being long-suffering. 
Suffering's not a great word. Suffering's not a fun word. Suffering means you're not having fun. But for a long time, you endure it. That's patience. He says that you're, you're tolerating the difficult things, the antagonistic things in someone else on purpose for the glory of God. You exhaust every option. You exhaust every avenue before you make some kind of a harmful, divisive decision. See how different that is from the way we normally operate? You wronged me. Pow. This says love suffers long. Exhausts every different kind of way to help, encourage, build up, rather than dropping the hammer that's going to divide. What is all of this about but finding unity in a time of division? And he says, for you, what you're going to do is live this kind of life that brings people together, gives people benefit of the doubt, gives them a second chance. Because that's what happens. Love doesn't give up on other people easily. Love gives extra chances. Remember, this was a conversation Jesus had with his disciples. How many times have we got to forgive? And depending upon the translation, Jesus says something effective of 70 times 7. In other words, as often as it takes, be forgiving. Love doesn't give up on people easily. Love offers opportunity for people to change and to grow. Because here's the deal. I know, just personally speaking, if I'm living a Matthew 7, 12 kind of life, Matthew 7, 12 is the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. If I'm living that kind of life, that's the way I want to be treated. I want somebody to give me a second chance. I want somebody to be sweet enough and kind enough and loving enough to come to me and say, listen, this has got to change. And I may hate it at first. In fact, I probably will hate it. But if I recognize that I'm loved in this circumstance, then I pray, Lord, give me the wisdom to take that advice and change. I'm thankful they gave me a second chance. I'm thankful they offered me this, this opportunity. I'm thankful that they kept loving me and stuck with me. Because love forgives. And one of the ways it's described here in this paragraph that we read is that love not only forgives, but love moves on just like the Lord does. The Lord doesn't continue to hold our um, sins over our head that we've been forgiven of. If we've repented and confessed and been washed, then He says, you're forgiven. That's gone. So the Lord moves on and we're to seek to follow the Lord in that way also. But I think it boils down to this. Love is a commitment to keep on and keep on and keep on seeking what is best and seeking what is in the best interests of the others no matter what. Love keeps on seeking the best for others. And he says, this is what it looks like right here in these verses. So God supplies and He defines what the standard is. He defined what love looks like. And that adheres to, we see in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love adheres to and then celebrates and rejoices in the truth, the objective, unchanging truth. It's outside of me. I don't decide what's true or wrong. The Lord decides that. And then what I do is I submit myself to it and seek to live it. Celebrates the truth, does not celebrate a lie and iniquity and sin. And so that's what we seek to be. That's the nature of love that God's calling us to. And this brings us to the last thing, how long it lasts. Read with me these lines, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's start in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. Now, as for prophecies, that ability, that's going to pass away. Speaking in tongues, doing that, that's going to cease. 
that divine knowledge we spoke of in the first paragraph, that's going to pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the complete, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Look, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I did all those childish things. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And I want you to note the connection here. This is not my you know, insensitive or snarky way of saying things, but the Lord here, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to say these spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecies and knowledge, that is part of infancy and childhood. And we're going to move on beyond those things to mature Christianity. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I've been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Some aspects of God's plan, note what this is saying. Some aspects of God's plan arrive, and then they're fulfilled. So there's, there's reasonable debate to be had here in this regard, and I'm open to that, and I see that, and I understand that, but I'm convinced that this is where we are right here as we read this line, this paragraph. In the first century days of Jesus and the apostles, the ones that Jesus charged with establishing and growing the church, the apostles, they were able to do incredible things. They could heal the sick and make the blind see and allow the deaf to hear and make the lame walk. They could even bring back some from the dead. Incredible. And those signs and those wonders helped people believe that Jesus really was the Christ and it helped them believe that the apostles were his divinely ordained ministers and messengers. And those things taught the gospel message. Those people taught the gospel message. And the miracles that they did confirmed the message as being authentic. This is Mark 16, verse 20. Mark 16, 20. They, meaning the apostles, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, objectively speaking, such things are not happening in the same way today. But don't misunderstand and don't walk out of here thinking something I'm not saying or thinking. God absolutely 100% powerfully, unimaginably, beyond what we can think or conceive, God absolutely lives, sees, and works today. Otherwise, why in the world would we spend so much of our time praying? I mean, that's an exercise in futility. Please, Lord, help us do X, Y, and Z. If I already know, he's just going to say, nope, that's ridiculous. No, I pray not only because I'm called to, commanded to, but because I'm told, I'm assured in Scripture that it matters and it makes a difference. I mean, just look at one verse in spite of all the other thousands of things written in Scripture. James chapter 5, verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man works, makes a difference. King James, availeth much, it works, it makes a difference. And so we say, we know, we know. I believe Paul to be saying that once we have the full revelation of God's word, once we have the complete scripture, the Holy Bible, those signs and those wonders of bringing people back from the dead and these kinds of things, that ceases. And so once the generation that followed the apostles passed away, so did these special, incredible, amazing spiritual gifts. There was a shelf life. So just like childish things should go away, just sort of a 
rudimentary list of childhood tantrums. That should go away when you get a little older. I don't want to name any names of anybody that may be a little old to be throwing tantrums. Just kidding. But that should go away, right? We expect little ones, tantrums. Little ones, screaming. Little ones, crying. Older ones, that shouldn't be the case of your life anymore. The infant church needed certain things to help them move to the next stage. They needed certain things to help them move in development and life to the next place. Those gifts helped them grow up. Just like a parent now will, will coddle and hold and give a pacifier and give food and do these things that they'll stop doing once children get older. Because they need that special help and attention to get through a certain stage. You don't stop loving. You don't stop caring. You don't stop providing. But the way you love and care and provide changes. Amen? And that's what we see in the church. The Lord saw them in their infancy and provided them with things to get them to the next stage. And once they did, those other things passed away. The gifts helped them grow up, but they weren't intended to be forever. Now, there's one aspect of things that will never, ever, ever, ever go away, and that's that love never ends. It has to be part of your life right here, right now, because guess what? Blessedly, thankfully, Almighty God says it's going to be part of your eternal existence in His presence. What a thought that is. An eternity of basking in the perfect love of God. Sharing, feeling, giving, receiving, experiencing divine love. It's so incredible. It's really beyond our power to properly imagine what that experience is like. But here's what we know. We have to live with love described in this chapter. We have, you and I have to live and display the love described in 1 Corinthians 13 right now if we want to experience that kind of love forever. Because without love, we're nothing. Without love, we say nothing, we accomplish nothing. I wonder if we are displaying the nature and character of love that God demands to the people around us. Let's be thankful that we are so loved. Let's return that love to our Lord and to our neighbors. Oftentimes it begins with this expression, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. We confess that Jesus is Lord, we repent of sins, are washed in a watery grave with Him, and we come up out of that grave united with Christ, united with Him in a kind of love that can only be between God and His creation. Are you loved like that? Or are you maybe in this kind of category where you know you are a sinner and you know you have failed and messed up and done things that are terrible? Well, guess what? You are loved. Won't you come and bow before the one who can heal and restore? Come to the one who loves you while we stand and sing.